Well, please take your Bibles out and turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 7, as we continue our verse-by-verse study through John's Gospel. Our steady diet of preaching here at Lookout Valley Baptist Church is what's known as expositional preaching, where that is we preach verse by verse through whole books of the Bible. Rather than just cherry-picking a verse here and a verse there, we think it is best by God's design to preach that way because that's the way the Bible was written. The Bible wasn't written with a lot of coffee cup verses here and there, but it was written in letters and narratives and books and gospels. And so that's the way we preach. And so we are here in chapter 7. This is the 29th sermon, if you're keeping track, from the Gospel of John as we turn the page into chapter 7. And the title of my sermon is this, The Focus of the Feast. I would like you to imagine this morning there is a king over a kingdom. And this king has a son, the royal prince, the crown prince over the kingdom. And he plans for one day, this prince, to take the royal throne. And so this king has set up his kingdom, and in so doing, he has established purposes and edicts for this grand design. Over the years, there have been many battles the kingdom has faced, and through those battles and those struggles, there have been triumphs. There have been victories. And so what the king has established is ceremonies, and festivals to commemorate the great triumphs and victories of the kingdom. But these festivals are also intended to point forward and to anticipate the coming kingdom of his son. But beyond that, the king has also decreed that there would be a palace that would be built in honor of his son. And everything that takes place in this palace is to prefigure and to portray the coming kingdom of his son. But imagine if that palace has been overtaken by traitors, by rebels who don't have the best interest of the kingdom, and in fact who want to capture and want to kill the son of the king. And beyond that, they have co-opted the festivals that are intended to portray not only the past victories, but intended to anticipate the coming kingdom of the Son. They have taken and co-opted those festivals and those feasts for their own purposes and their own designs. And imagine how tragic and appalling it would be if the prince himself comes to the palace built for his honor, and he has to sneak in. He has to come to a festival that is designed to portray his future kingdom, and he has to come in secrecy because there are those who have these murderous plots against him. But when he comes in secret, he comes to expose the rebels and to put them on notice. Well, that is exactly what we see happening in our passage today. God is the king, and he has established a kingdom, and his son, Jesus Christ, is on the throne today. He is ruling, and he is reigning. But at this point in chronological redemptive history, he is coming into the palace, into the temple that was designed for his purposes and to portray his future kingdom, and he's having to come in secret because there are those who seek to kill him. God's own chosen people want to murder their Messiah. All this takes place during what's known as the Feast of Tabernacles, or the way the ESV translates it, the Feast 
of booths. And I'll explain what the Feast of Booths was in Israel's history and also how it portrays the coming kingdom of Jesus. So look with me in your Bible or on the Bible study outline I've provided at John chapter 7. We're going to read a long passage, verses 1 through 24. This is the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet, for fear of the Jews... No one spoke openly of him. Verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So as we turn the page into chapter 7, We are at the beginning of really two whole chapters that take place in the flow of the narrative during this Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, The Jewish feasts are important in John's gospel, and here's why, because we can keep track of the chronology. We know the times and dates of different Jewish festivals and feasts because they occur the same time every year. In fact, we know that Jesus' ministry was three years long because John specifically records three distinct Passovers. And so the last Passover is the Passover of Holy Week when Jesus is betrayed into their hands and crucified and killed. Now, this, it says, is the Feast of of Booths. We also know because of this, there are considerable gaps in John's gospel. He doesn't 
record absolutely everything that Jesus said or did. He says later in the gospel, it's impossible to record everything that Jesus said and did. So what we know is that this occurrence in chapter 7 is roughly six months after what happens in chapter 6. And here's how we know this. Uh, Chapter 6 focuses on the time around a Passover, the second Passover that John records. Passover on the Jewish calendar occurs around April, about the same time as our Easter. The Feast of Booths, however, occurs in the fall in early October. In fact, it's still celebrated today by the Jewish people, and, and the Feast of Booths, today it's known as Sukkot, it's celebrated this next Sunday, begins um, their Feast of the Booths, or Feast of Tabernacles, and it lasts for eight days. So here we are six months from Passover. We're in early October, around the second week of October in the fall, and this is the Feast of Booths, this eight-day celebration that's happening in Jerusalem. So there's been this six-month interval uh, between chapter 6 and chapter 7. And here's something else to know that's interesting about uh, the, the flow of the narrative and the timetable, the chronology, is because we're six months from Passover to now the Feast of Booths, we are also six months from the next Passover, next April, and that's when Jesus would be crucified and killed. Now, this feast, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, it is an exciting festival for the Jewish people, and here's why. Because it commemorates and it celebrates God's sustaining power of the Hebrews after they were rescued and delivered from their Egyptian slavery. The Feast of Booths or Tabernacles or Tents commemorates how they lived as nomads for 40 years before inheriting the Promised Land. And they went from place to place in their wilderness wanderings. And when they went from one place to another, they would set up their tents and their tabernacles and they would dwell there temporarily until it was time to move somewhere else. But God sustained them as a people supernaturally. And so for the people of Israel, this is what they would do during the Feast of Booze. They would journey to Jerusalem and it was kind of like a family camping trip. How many of you like family camping trips? Yeah, I don't. But a family camping trip... Back then, it was not that, that much of rough in it like it is today. I happen to like my uh, comfortable bed and air conditioning. Word. <laughs> so, but this was a seven-day family camping trip into Jerusalem, and they would set up their tents, and they would live temporarily in these tents, tents and go into the temple every day to enjoy the feast festivities there in the temple. But this feast not only points backward to commemorate God's sustaining power and work after the Exodus experience, it also points forward. It points forward to consider that God will again restore his people, that God will again deliver his people. It's pointing forward to the coming age when God would tabernacle among his people, when he would be their God and they would be his people. There will be a descendant from Abraham, from the tribe of Judah, a son of David who would be a deliverer, who would tabernacle among his people. Interestingly, this very uh, noun for tabernacle or tent we see here in John chapter 7, John uses the verb form in John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, we have the whole prologue of his gospel. And when you get to verse 14, look at John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace 
and truth. That word dwelt is a verb. It's the same form of a word that we have translated as booth or tabernacle or tent. Jesus came and tabernacled among his people. He manifested his presence physically. And this happened when he was born of Mary on that very first Christmas morning. What's the point? The point is that this festival is looking back at God's rescue in the past, but it's looking forward to God's rescue in the future. If you remember, if you move forward from John chapter 1 into John chapter 2 of his gospel, Jesus actually enters the temple complex, and he begins to run out the, the money changers and the sellers of animals, and he says, this is my father's house. And the religious leaders came to him and said, what authority do you have to do such things? Who gave you the right to come into this temple and start driving people out? Do you remember what Jesus said? They said, show us a sign. Give us a sign that you have the authority to do these things. Notice what Jesus said in John 2. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. You see, because not only were the festivals pointing to Jesus' manifest presence among his people, the very temple structure itself was symbolic of the work that Jesus would would do. Because what was the primary purpose of the temple? It was for sacrifices to be made. It was for blood to be shed. It was so that people would have atonement made for their sins, temporary atonement, because the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. But all those sacrifices, all those millions of gallons of blood that were shed throughout the centuries, they're all pointing to the blood of Jesus, the true temple of God. And the shocking irony here of this passage is that Jesus has to go to this place, the temple that exists to portray who he is and his work, and he has to go during this feast, the Feast of Booths, which was established by God to anticipate his coming, and has to come in secret. He has to come privately. Why? Because the rebels of God's purposes are seeking to kill him. This passage begins by telling us that Jesus was in Galilee, And he wouldn't go up into Judea yet because the Jews were, in fact, seeking to kill him. But why? Why were they seeking to kill him? Well, if you've been here in our study, you may remember back, back in chapter 5, this is about eight or nine months prior in the chronology, Jesus was in Jerusalem then for an unnamed feast. The text doesn't say which feast it was. And there, during that time of an unnamed feast, Jesus goes to the pool of Siloam or Bethesda, And there at that pool, there is an invalid who has been uh, sick for 38 years. And Jesus, in great mercy, raises him up. He says, take up your bed and walk. Well, that just so happened to be on the Sabbath day. And the religious muckety-mucks, who were the self-appointed guardians of all the rules and rituals that had been added to the law, who healed you? Who told you to take your bed up and walk? There's this guy down by the pool. I don't remember his name. They discover it's Jesus. And from that point on, they were persecuting Jesus, and they wanted to kill him. In fact, notice how John describes this in John 5, verse 16 and verse 18. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, 
because he was doing these things, not just this one thing, these kinds of things on the Sabbath, verse 18. And this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he's even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So it was what Jesus did and what Jesus claimed that has brought upon him the murderous threats of the Jewish religious leaders. And think about it. Again, this is eight, nine months after he heals the man on the Sabbath. And they are still seething with anger that Jesus would dare confront their rituals. Now, there are three paragraphs in our focal passage. And as such, I've got three points on my outline to correspond with those paragraphs to discover what John is presenting to us in the work of Jesus during this festival of booths. The first thing I want us to see is this. Number one, astonishing disbelief. Astonishing disbelief. We see the disbelief described by John in the gospel uh, as he gives this commentary in verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. John says even Jesus' own brothers didn't believe in him. Now, we know Jesus had siblings. He had brothers. They were half-siblings, half-brothers, by the way, because their father and mother were Joseph and Mary. Jesus' mother and father were Mary and God. So they are his half-brothers. In the Gospel of Mark and also in the Gospel of Luke, we find their names. They're recorded for us. Mark chapter 6 lists them as James, Joseph, Jude, and Simon. You've heard of James. He was the pastor of the Jerusalem church in the book of Acts, and he wrote the book of James that's in your Bible. You've heard of his brother Jude, because Jude wrote the New Testament book called Jude. Very good class. So two of his four brothers listed actually were authors of Holy Spirit-inspired Scripture. So obviously, at one point, they believed in Jesus. But at this point in the chronology, in John chapter 7, they don't yet believe in Jesus, according to John. They're not believers just yet. So we have to ask, in what way did his brothers not believe in him? Did they believe in his existence? There are some today who say they don't believe that Jesus even existed, that he wasn't even a real person historically. Did John's brothers believe that Jesus existed? Well, of course they did. They were having a conversation with him. They watched him. He was the older brother that they grew up under. They had seen him. They had heard him. They observed him. They were giving him advice and recommendations here in the first section of this passage. So their disbelief was not in his existence. Well, how about this? Did they uh, believe that he was a miracle worker, a, a wonder worker? There are liberal churches in America today that deny the miraculous nature of Jesus. They said that the miracles you read in the Bible, all that's just allegory. It's not real. We believe in the miraculous nature of Jesus, by the way. Jesus' brothers believed in his miraculous nature. How do we know that? Because he, they told him, Jesus, go to Jerusalem and do your thing. Go to Jerusalem and perform your works. Do the miracles. There's going to be a massive crowd there. Hundreds of thousands of pilgrims who have traveled from all over Palestine will be there. That's how you can get the biggest show. So they believed in his existence. They believed in his miraculous nature and works. How about this? Did they believe that he was the Messiah? I actually tend to think they did believe he was the Messiah, but not the Messiah that he would actually intend to be, but Messiah they were anticipating. 
You see, why else would they say, go to Jerusalem for this huge festival? They knew Jesus was the adopted son of Joseph. They knew their father, Joseph, was descendant from the line of David. So Jesus met the credentials and the qualifications to be Israel's Messiah. They also knew he had the capacity above and beyond anybody in the world. He had an intellect, he had a mind, he had a teaching ability, and he had a miraculous nature. If there's anybody that could curry power, if there's anybody that can bring about the masses in Jerusalem to topple and overthrow Rome, well, their brother's the man. And oh, by the way, Jesus, if you go to Jerusalem, we might just hang out with you and ride the coattails, and maybe you'll give us a couple positions in the kingdom. So I think they believed that Jesus actually could be the Messiah, but they did not believe in Jesus to be the Messiah that he actually came to be. They did not believe that Jesus was coming, as Isaiah 53 prophesied, to be the suffering servant who would be pierced, who would be crushed, who would be hung on a cross to die and then be resurrected. He will receive a kingdom, but they didn't believe all these truths. In fact, it's interesting, as you move to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about the proofs of Jesus' resurrection from the grave, from the dead. He gives several lists of people who, were, who witnessed Jesus' resurrection. Notice what he says in 1 Corinthians 13, um, actually it's 15, verse 3 and following. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. What did Jesus do? He says, hey, bro, it's me. I'm alive. And you better believe at that moment, James believed in Jesus, as did all the other brothers. They believed in Jesus. Again, they were wanting for him to fulfill the national desire as a conquering king, But what did Jesus tell him in verse 6? He says, my time's not yet come. And then verse 8, my time's not yet fully come. Look at verses 6 through 8 again. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. What's the time he's referring to? Well, the brothers surely understood and knew of the prophecies about Messiah. They knew that Zechariah 9.9 predicted that the Messiah would come into Jerusalem on the foal, the colt of a donkey, and that he would be proclaimed, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna to the son of David. So maybe they're saying, Jesus, this would be a great time to saddle up your horses and ride on in to Jerusalem. And he says, my time has not yet come. It would come. Six months from right here, the Feast of Booths, it would come. Jesus would, in fact, ride on a colt, the foal of a donkey, and he would ride into the acclaims of the people 
Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But after he gets off the donkey, and then he goes into the upper room with his followers, fast forward five chapters from where we are, we'll be here in about March of next year. Notice what Jesus says to the disciples. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Six months earlier at the Feast of Booze, he tells his brothers, my hour has not yet come. It's not yet fully my hour. After the triumphal entry, he tells his disciples, the hour has come. The hour has come. But again, at this point in the narrative, his brothers don't get it. There's this disbelief. And that moves to the second paragraph. And the second point I want us to see, number two, attending discreetly. Jesus does go to the festival. He does go to the feast in Jerusalem, but he determines to attend discreetly. Look again at verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Now you may say, well, wait a second. Was Jesus lying to his brothers? He told them, I'm not going up. And then after they left, he goes up. Is he a hypocrite? Says one thing and does another? No, what Jesus meant was, I'm not going up the way you want me to go up. I'm not going up riding on a donkey. I'm not going up to the acclaims of people. I'm not going up uh, to publicly display myself as the Messiah. I'm going privately. I'm going secretly. He goes privately and attends the festival. From what we can tell from John's gospel and from the other four gospel accounts, that you know, Jesus traveled all through Palestine from Jerusalem, Judea, into Samaria, up into Galilee, and then back down south and up again. From what we can tell, as best we can tell, Jesus, when he goes into Jerusalem here, privately, secretly, he will be in the region of Judea for the next six months, not ever going back into Galilee again. He will stay here for the final six months of his earthly ministry. In fact, look at this next slide. I've got a map of Palestine. You see up in the far north is Capernaum. And uh, there on the Sea of Galilee is where Jesus walked on the water. And it was in the synagogue of Capernaum that he taught there. And then if you continue to come south, you see that his hometown or Joseph's hometown of Nazareth is in Galilee. He would go through Samaria, even though most Jews would go around Samaria. He would go through Samaria, and there that city of Sychar, we hear about that city in John chapter 4, where the woman at the well, and he met him and her and delivered her. Then you go into Judea, and that's where Bethlehem is. It's not on the map, but just south of Samaria, the little village of Bethlehem, the city of David, where Jesus was born, is in Judea. Then all the way at the bottom, the city of Jerusalem, that's the capital of Israel. That's the religious center of the Hebrew people. That's where the temple was. And so he's going down to Jerusalem into Judea, the region of Judea, and he'll be there for the next six months. The city of Bethany is not far from Jerusalem. That's where his friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus reside. He's going to spend a lot of time in Bethany, but he will stay in Judea. And look again at verse 10. There's five words I want to point out in verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Here's what I want to point out. When Jesus decides, I'm going now to Jerusalem, I'm going to Judea for the last time, he knows full well what's in store for him. 
He knows what's coming six months from this point. He also went up. The prophet Isaiah described Jesus' steely determination by saying he set his face like flint. In fact, look at this cross-reference in Luke 9. In Luke 9, 51, the Bible says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. You see, in Jerusalem, there would be many more debates with the religious leaders. There would be many more times they questioned him and tried to entrap him. In Jerusalem, there would be opportunities with his disciples in these closing six months for intensive teaching and instruction to train and develop them to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. There in Judea for these last six months, there would be countless miracles, healings, delivering the lame, the blind, and the demonically oppressed, even delivering Lazarus from the grave. But also awaiting Jesus in Jerusalem is this triumphal entry when he will come in to the shouts of Hosanna. What else is awaiting Jesus in Jerusalem? The betrayal of Judas for 30 pieces of silver. The once, twice, and three-time denial of his close friend Peter and eventually the abandonment of all his friends. What else is waiting Jesus in Jerusalem? That sham of a trial. A gutless governor named Pontius Pilate. What else is awaiting Jesus in Jerusalem? The mocking and the beating and the plucking of his beard and the crown of thorns and the cross. Death is awaiting Jesus in Jerusalem. And he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And when he arrives here during the Feast of Booths, what does he find? There's all kinds of whispering and muttering and questions about his identity. Look again at verses 11 and 12 of our focal passage. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, the Jewish leaders, no one spoke openly of him. Remember, he's been to Jerusalem already. He healed the man, the invalid, by the pool There's been multiple healings, rumors of his miracles, feeding of thousands. Of course people are going to be talking about Jesus. Of course people are going to be anticipating that a Hebrew male would be required to be at the festival. Yet they didn't talk openly about him because they didn't want to ruffle the feathers of the power brokers, the religious leaders. They're hoping, the religious leaders that on this Feast of Booze, they're going to be able to draw Jesus out and pounce on him there. They're looking for him. They're waiting for his arrival. And there's uncertainty on the part of the people, uncertainty on the part of his brothers. But yet Jesus goes there in secret. And I find it interesting that with all these questions and muttering and whispering about the identity of Jesus in the narrative, John says, let's just let Jesus speak for himself. That leads to the third paragraph and third point, agenda disclosed. 
Jesus goes from private to public. And when he does, he discloses the agenda for why he came to Jerusalem. Look at verse 14 again. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. This is an important point. Do you remember what his brothers wanted him to do when he goes to Jerusalem during the feast? Miracles. Pitch a tent. Put up the big tent. Have people come. Incidentally, by the way, this is just a little aside. When Jesus performed his miraculous works, it was never, hey, let's go into this town, put up a big red tent, and invite everybody to come see this faith healer. That happens today. Jesus healed as he went. That's how we know it was legitimate. He met the needs as he went. But this is what his brothers wanted him to do. Put on the show. You'll garner all kinds of followers. You'll have this insurrection against the Romans and the fake religious leaders. But when Jesus shows up and he goes public, what does he do? He began teaching. Interestingly here, in John chapter 7 and John chapter 8, which is all around this festival of tabernacles, this feast of booths, John doesn't record a single miracle. Now, he probably performed miracles because he was miraculous in nature. John doesn't record a miracle. All John records is his teaching. So for the next almost two months, we're going to be looking at John chapter 7 and John chapter 8 at the teaching of Jesus as he's recorded it for us. And how do they respond to his teaching? Look at verse 15. The Jews, therefore, marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? Now, students in school, you can't be like Jesus. You can't have learning unless you've studied, right? Jesus has learning, and he's never studied. How is that? They're saying, how does he have such a grasp on the Old Testament Scripture, on the Hebrew Scriptures? Well, maybe it just might be because Jesus inspired those scriptures through his spirit. That's how he has a handle on them. And so here he is, and he's teaching, and they're marveling. Why are they marveling? Because he did not teach like the Jews taught. You see, the style of the rabbis of the first century would have been very similar to lawyers today as they lawyer. How do lawyers present their cases? They present precedent. They present case law. They study and they put forward, oh, this judge and this court that's higher than your court, they made this decision and it applies to this case that I'm presenting to you today. And they would quote this case and this court and this judge and this lawyer. And that's really how the the rabbis of Israel would teach. Well, Rabbi Ephraim has said this and that, and Rabbi Lemuel has said thus and so, and so that's how we know this and that. And so that's how the rabbis would teach in the temple and in the synagogues. But that's not how Jesus taught. In fact, at the end of his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, we see what people thought of Jesus' teaching in comparison to the way they've been taught by the rabbis all their lives. Look at Matthew chapter 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. In other words, I don't care what rabbi so-and-so says, he's the son of God. 
He's teaching as one who has authority. And those who were there at the temple that day when he went public halfway through the Feast of Booths, he's teaching, and they are astonished at his teaching. He didn't go to the right schools. He doesn't have the right degrees on the wall. He doesn't know the right people. How does he have such a magnificent understanding? And then as we move to verses 17 and 18, we really get to the crux of the matter, the reason why Jesus did all that he did, why he's going public here, we get to his agenda. What's the agenda? Look at verse 17 and 18. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Watch this. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus do all the things that he did? Why did he say the things he said? Why did he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem and embrace the suffering and the cross? Why? For the glory of God alone. In fact, look at this next slide. Jesus fulfilled God's will in order to give God glory. He did it all for the glory of God. God is all about his glory. And Jesus is living and breathing and pursuing that glory. And friends, shouldn't that be the pursuit of our hearts? The glory of God Why do we do anything we do as a church? Why do we have mission trips? Why do we have classes? Why do we do our Wednesday night Grow University? Why do we have small groups? Why do we have kingdom kids and student ministry? Why do we uh, have, I spend hours on sermons. Are we seeking to build our own reputation? The name of a local church on a sign? As this section of our focal passage closes, as I read it and studied it throughout the week, as I thought about Jesus' incredible intellect, (laughs) I was moved personally to doxology, to praise, to worship. Because what Jesus does at the end of this passage is he speaks with logic and insight about the law that confounds his rejectors. Now remember, these religious leaders are still seething eight, nine months later after Jesus had healed somebody on the Sabbath day. They're still upset about that because he rebuffed their self-appointed role as the religious gatekeepers of Israel. So he confounds them. How does he do that? Well, let me summarize the end of this section, verses 19 through 24. First, look at verse 19. Jesus asks a question. He says, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? You see, they accuse Jesus of breaking the law, but he's saying, you're actually the ones who don't follow the law. How do they not follow the law? I don't know if you know, but one of the top ten is thou shalt not kill. (laughs) Don't murder. They were breathing murderous threats against Jesus. They sought to kill Jesus without cause. But then he reveals in this discourse, again, his divine logic, that there are some laws in the Mosaic law that take precedence 
over other laws. So let's say there are some primary laws that you cannot ever break. There are some secondary laws and there are some tertiary laws. And what Jesus is going to illustrate and demonstrate is there may be instances where there is a primary law that must be obeyed, and in so doing, you might break a tertiary law in the process. So, for instance, he talks about the law of circumcision. Circumcision was given to Abraham as a sign of the covenant between Abraham and God. This will be an everlasting covenant. And circumcision was given as a sign of that promise, a sign of that covenant. And it was to be for Abraham and all of his descendants. And so it was put into and codified in the Mosaic Law in the book of Leviticus. That every male child born among the Hebrews on the eighth day, not the seventh day, not the ninth day, on the eighth day, that Hebrew boy must be circumcised. So, for instance... If you're, you have a son born on, let's say, October 1st, yesterday, and he is to be circumcised on the eighth day, that would be October 8th. That would be next Saturday, which is the Hebrew Sabbath. And so Jesus says, what do you do? Because I don't know if you know, but a, a moil, a Jewish moil, that's somebody that performs circumcisions today, he would probably tell you it's work, <laughs> And a priest who would perform the circumcisions in the first century may have four, five, six, ten babies born that needed to be circumcised on the Sabbath day. What do you do? You say, sorry, it's the Sabbath day. No, there was precedence for the priority of the circumcision law over the Sabbath law. And Jesus is presenting to them this reality in their own practice. You circumcise on the Sabbath day. Why? Because that takes priority over the Sabbath day. In fact, in Luke, Jesus says, how many of you, Pharisees, if your son fell in a well on the Sabbath day, would you leave him there till tomorrow? No, because we know human life is of greater value than following these regulations and rules. So he's presenting this before them, and he says, "If, if circumcising a baby on the eighth day marks him as a child of the covenant and purifies him as one of the members of the Hebrew people, how much more would healing an invalid who's been sick for 38 years be right to do on the Sabbath day? As an invalid, he was unclean, perpetually unclean, couldn't go into the temple, but now he can. And so he's making this argument before them, and he concludes his argument in verse 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. To put it in our vernacular, have some common sense, people. That doesn't make sense. That you would prevent a man to be healed because of your rituals and regulations. Of course, the religious leaders have no answer to what Jesus is saying. They can't refute what he's saying. Well, as I close, I want to point out really this great contrast that John presents for us in the entirety of this passage. There's a juxtaposition between the first half and the second half of John 7, 1 through 24. You see the first half, we see the brothers, and they were motivated by personal glory. They were motivated by pride. They were motivated by, hey, guys, we can ride Jesus' coattails all the way to the top. Then you get to the second half of our passage, and what's Jesus motivated by? Humility, obedience to the purposes of God, 
not worldly glory like his brothers, but God's glory. And as I thought about it this week, I asked myself this question. Am I doing things for my glory, for worldly glory, or for God's glory? Am I seeking to make a name for myself or make a name for God and for his kingdom? And friends, if Jesus lived every moment for the glory of God, shouldn't we? We'll see Jesus' deep desire to give glory to the Father come to fruition again five chapters from here in chapter 12. Jesus once again discloses the glory for whom he is living and moving and breathing and acting and doing. Notice what Jesus says finally in John chapter 12, just hours from the cross, hours from being hanged on a cross. Jesus says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He lived, he moved, he breathed, he died for the glory of God by taking the punishment for our sin. And over the next two months, as we're in John chapter 7 and chapter 8, we will see this during the Feast of Booths, a festival that was instituted by God to, yes, remember the victories of the past and the triumphs of the people, but to look forward to anticipate the future coming reign of a king. And during this Feast of Booths, there would be a celebration held in the palace to be for the honor of the Son. But that palace is now occupied by rebels who want to kill him. Little do they know that when they act on their murderous plot, they will actually be fulfilling the purpose for why Jesus came. He came to die. He came to accomplish the soul-saving purpose of giving his life as a ransom for many. And I pray that our consideration of these truths will move us to honor, praise, adoration, and worship. And that leads to my last thought. As we see the work of Jesus prefigured in the feasts of Israel, we are moved to worship him. And that's what we're going to do right now. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.